Hello, I'm Luca De Giglio, and this is the Web3 in Travel podcast, where you can learn about crypto, blockchain, and how the new internet will change travel. So we have reached the end of 2021, and it's been an incredible year for crypto. I have touched most of the basic aspects of Web3 in the first episodes. And I think this is a great moment to look back at the whole 2021 and try to see what's going to happen next year. And I've just finished reading uh, an incredible essay. It's called Crypto Thesis for 2022, published by Messari, which is probably the most important analysis company in the space. They do this every year. And in about 150 pages, it covers really everything which happened in the last year and and tries to give some forecasts for next year. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at everything they talked about and see this from the vertical of travel. So if you ever wanted to get ready for 2022 in Web3 in general and Web3 in travel, Specifically, I think this podcast is going to be uh, useful. The writer of this report is Ryan Selkis. On Twitter, his handle is 2BitIdiot. And it's a very recommended um, Twitter account to follow. It's brilliant, in my opinion, as many, many others. And by the way, I'm not sure I said this, but in terms of social networks for crypto, Twitter is everything. I mean, you can skip all the YouTube videos, you can skip all the Facebook or LinkedIn stuff, and you go on Twitter, everything is there. And if you're lucky enough to follow the right people, it's a constant dump of incredible knowledge and alpha. So you may actually start from this guy, 2-bit idiot, and maybe follow who he follows. Or another option is to go on my own Twitter handle, uh, TripLuca. T-R-I-P-L-U-C-A and follow who I follow. Twitter is a social network which made me believe in social networks again. And it can be a complete shit show uh, if you just follow you know, the, the wrong people, the, 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 the traders, the influencers, etc. But if you follow the right people, it's, I mean, I don't think humanity has ever seen such an easy way to get direct exposure to the greatest minds in the world. And I don't say this lightly, so really it changed my view on social networks with all the problems Twitter has being a centralized company and censoring people, etc. We can do much better in general as humanity in social networks and we will do better, hopefully through Web3, but Twitter today is by far the, the best or maybe the only one where you actually get some value easily. Oh, and by the way, Jack Dorsey just left Twitter. Uh, Jack Dorsey is I suppose a great guy, but also a Bitcoin maximalist. And now he left open the way for other people in Web3, in Twitter, who believe in Web3, so integrations with the broader Web3 movement, and especially Ethereum and Ethereum-compatible chains. Now, I'm going to start with something which is not related at all to travel, but it gives you the feeling and the kind of perspective Ryan has which represents in good part the basic ethos of Web3, blockchains, open networks, 
which is really useful now that more people are getting in and many don't even think decentralization is important and have completely different agendas. So this is a tweet uh, Ryan wrote on the 12th of August, and here it goes. I'm sick of feeling like we have to apologize for our early stage and walk on eggshells around politicians and regulators. We built a $2 trillion financial market from scratch in less than a decade with absolutely no institutional help and active encumbrances from government. Meanwhile, banks give you 0.025% interest on your deposits and front-run your trades legally. And Washington, D.C. grifters overspend and debase your tax dollars while they insider trade stocks with impunity. Like other early-stage transformational tech markets, there are some characters, some bad actors, but mostly it's just brave entrepreneurs and innovators. Don't spit in our face and pretend you're here to save people from us. We started this movement to save people from you. And that's the tweet. And this last sentence is something we should always remember. We started this movement to save people from you. And we can apply this to travel. We will be able to apply this to travel. Exactly yesterday, somebody proposed on Twitter to Brian Chesky from Airbnb to go Airbnb in blockchain. And Brian Chesky said, he asked to Twitter, basically, shall we do this? Showing an opening to consider this technology, which, of course, I've given for granted for a long time. These guys know very well what's happening and are looking very closely at, at the development of the technology. It's not like Brian Chesky discovered um, blockchain yesterday on Twitter. Now, as more and more Web2 platforms come on Web3, I think we'll need to remember this sentence. We started this movement to save people from you. Where centralized platforms in Web2, OTAs, Airbnb, Booking, and all the others, have created a situation in which people started thinking ways to get out of this chokehold. And they will come back. They will come back with tokens and DAOs and talks about decentralization. And... This is going to be great. I mean, I can't wait to get airdrops on Airbnb tokens. But let's remember, we started this movement to save people from you. Because it's really easy to get excited when Big Daddy comes and says, okay, you're right, this is what we should do. And then go on and start doing a lot of cosmetic movements, which means nothing really changes. And I don't remember if I said this in the podcast somewhere. But there is a North Star in this space which we can follow. And that's another tweet from Red Phone Crypto, which is an anonymous person on Twitter with uh, an avatar of a clown who says, there are but two ingredients by which one should judge all long-term crypto projects. Subtraction of power from the elites, addition of power to the people. Okay, so, and if it's not this, I don't know what we're doing because we're not making anything faster or more efficient. We are making things more decentralized, which means we are shifting power from elites to people. And that's why decentralization is so important. So anyway, let's start our analysis. The first section is top 10 narratives and investment themes, because I forgot to mention uh, Ryan is an investor, so the whole Messari actually is an investor company. They don't 
just analyze stuff. They analyze stuff so they can invest. And so they are foremost, first and foremost investors. And so again, they say top 10 narratives and investment teams. And the first chapter is the collapse in institutional trust. And there is a parallel with travel here, and we go back to platforms. There's been a collapse in trust in the institutions, like in the, in the platforms, because in the years we realized that, yes, they have an important role. Yes, they are very good marketing tools, but at the same time, we cannot really trust they're doing our interests. And this has been painfully clear uh, at the beginning of the pandemic when Airbnb sided with the guests and refunded all the guests, creating huge problems and bankruptcies for on the, on the host side. And I remember when I started talking about possible alternative to the OTAs on Web3, there still was a lot of trust in, in Airbnb, especially in Airbnb because I'm from the vacation rental market. So these are the people I used to talk to. And the vacation rental market is probably, in general, the Airbnb market is much less sophisticated than other other verticals in, in travel, which have decades of experience. And I've clearly seen how we went from the complete adoration of this new startup from Silicon Valley to realizing that, yeah, that's a corporation and they do money. So that's what they do. And if they have to choose between making money, so defending their shareholder interests or defending the people who actually give them the properties, they, they go for the first in a blink of the eye. So we stand today in a world where everybody or like most people are using OTAs heavily, relying on them for incoming bookings. But at the same time, there's a, some uneasiness on knowing that something is not right, there's too much power in their hands, and they were supposed to be just the middleman. So as it often happens, the middleman has all the power. And there's a lot of talk and action on the book direct movement, which is, in my opinion, the way out, which has not realized by the least that the way, the way out for a book direct is through Web3. And we're going to get there sooner or later because Web3 is going to give the real powerful tools for people to get direct bookings because Web3 is about trust. And the reason guests mostly use OTAs is because they trust the OTAs and they don't trust to go direct most of the times. But we're going to get there. So to close this chapter, there is a little trust left towards OTAs in general. The second chapter is crypto slash Web3 is inevitable. And I'm convinced this fully applies to travel. So Chris Dixon from Andrews Horowitz, A16Z, which I think is the biggest investor in, in the space coming from the legacy investment world says the internet owned by the builders and users orchestrated with tokens. Another one, Eshita, says Web 1, Web 2, Web 3 evolution is read-only in Web 1, read and write in Web 2, read, write, and own in Web 3. So why is it inevitable? Uh, three main reasons. The talent, the brilliant, passionate, big vision young builders are flocking to Web 3. It's just more interesting than working for a big corporation. If you are an innovator at heart, that's where innovation happens in Web3, not certainly at Google or, or Facebook or Airbnb today. The second reason is capital. There's 
an incredible influx of capital in Web3. I mean, it's it's really mind-blowing. So there's a lot of money coming in Web3 from outside. And this only should make you bullish about the whole space. And timing. Timing is perfect. So during the last bear market, uh, a two-year you know, winter, crypto winter, critical infrastructure was installed. And it makes it easier and easier to start working on Web3, basically. So is Web3 inevitable in travel? Yes, it is. There is no way, in my opinion, that companies will thrive in the next decade ignoring Web3. Does it mean everybody's going to go fully decentralized and the world will be a better place? No, it doesn't. It's just a technology. Some people will just you know, adopt small parts of it, maybe just a token to go to vote on the new logo, and others will be native. And again, my bet is always on native technology companies, not on companies moving from one to the other. But nothing has been written yet. Uh, Booking transitioned from Web 1 to Web 2 incredibly well. Airbnb is a native Web 2 company. And let's see how they transition to Web 3. I'm not even saying let's see if if they transition to Web 3. Let's see how. That's how bullish and arrogant I am, but um, I'm so sure about this, but that I'm ready to bet my whole, the little reputation I have on this fact. Third chapter, bridges and nifties and DAOs. And by nifties here, they're joking a bit, is NFTs. And what the chapter talks about is basically that infrastructure for DAOs has grown a lot and it keeps growing. Infrastructure for NFTs, the same. And if you remember, NFTs is basically a digital asset and you know it's stuff online, which makes it huge, maybe even bigger than tokens themselves. And bridges are those pieces of software which let you go from one blockchain to the other, making the whole web tree a blockchain of blockchains, a web of blockchains. So making it incredibly scalable and basically limitless. Chapter four, the decoupling of cryptos. And in this chapter, they say something very interesting for the travel industry, in my opinion. In the last cycle, so 2017, 2018, Crypto was just crypto. You you could follow everything, just you know, dedicating some time and know everything about crypto. Now this has become impossible. Now you have the choice. You can become a DeFi expert, a Bitcoin expert, um, distributed computing platform expert, NFTs expert, work to earn markets, play to earn. And there's no way you can know everything. I myself have lost track of a lot of things. I missed incredible opportunities because simply I didn't have the time. So this is a great moment to become a Web3 travel expert. First, because at this stage, there's not really much to follow. So you can actually know everything if you put enough time into it. And two, because it's going to become huge. And having people who know a lot about this It's going to be incredibly important. Chapter five, permanent venture capital. In, up, and down, never out. In the last cycle, people put money in crypto, and when crypto went down, they put it out. They went back to the dollars. That's not happening anymore. Uh, What you do when you want to risk off, when you want to sell, you sell for stable coins, which represent $1. But you don't go back to your bank account. Especially venture capital doesn't do this. Crypto funds are likely among the best performing investment firms of all time, which makes it very easy for them to get money from outside. So there is this chart which says growth of crypto assets under management, which I suppose means VC funds, basically. 
And it starts in on January 1st, 2016. I got into Bitcoin myself in November 2013. So this is three years after I got into this, which means before this, there was basically no institutional investment. Everything was retail. So people, normal people like me and you, simply buying some coins, right? So on January 1st, 2016, there were $190 million total in VC money in crypto. A year later, it was three times that. A year later, it was six billions. Then it was a year later, 18 billions. This is January 2020, right before COVID. At the beginning of this year, 25 billion, and now we are about 60 billion. And so if you are afraid of the next bear market, because you know every market has cycles and this market is now in a bull run, it's going to crash again. But I am convinced that we will not see such a bear market as, as the year 2018-19 because of this 60 billion, most hasn't been allocated. So it's money which is still to be spent. And if you go in a bear market, well, that's probably the best time for them to spend this money. And it's going to keep people building. Yeah, prices will crash. And this is even healthy. But this money is not going to go away from crypto. This is, well, we, we passed the Rubicon here. We, we are just going ahead for now. 90% of the largest deals in crypto history happened this year. And this is excluding Coinbase direct listing on the stock exchange. So the chapter ends with the institutions are actually here this time. What does it mean for travel? Well, it means we're going to see funds dedicated to investing in Web3 in travel which may sound weird, but at a certain point, they're going to drop the Web3 name and they're going to just say, we invest in travel because everything in travel will be on the internet and everything on the internet will be on Web3. So if you are an investor who wants to put money in a fund, well, start looking. Probably they're already thinking about this. There's, there's incredible opportunities there. Chapter six is how high we can fly, which is trying to see and predict some prices. This is not really important in terms of travel, but just to give you an idea, we are talking about Bitcoin to 100,000 or even up to half a million and Ethereum going to 10, 15, 20,000. It sits now about 4,000 or even 10 times more than that because Ethereum is following very closely the growth in price of Bitcoin and the macro investor role poll keep saying that it's, it's exactly following that. So there's a high chance it goes to those prices. Bitcoin is about $50,000 now. And then they talk about Solana, DeFi, NFTs, etc. So the point is to say, how high can we fly before we crash? And the higher we fly, the, the stronger we crash, right? We had a very big crash in, in May. Uh, Bitcoin went down to 50%. Ethereum, even more than that. And we kind of recovered. And now there's been another little crash. And by little, I mean 20%, which is not little by if you come from the normal uh, legacy investment world. And everything could crash easily. I mean, if Bitcoin goes back to 20,000, which is a doom scenario for most, well, 20,000 was the all-time high until kind of October last year. We were dreaming about 20,000, right? So get ready for a wild ride in crypto. You're going to see crashes you wouldn't believe, and they're going to keep happening. So the question that Ryan asks himself in this chapter is not, 
okay, Bitcoin is going to half a million and we are all going to be rich. This is how high it will go before it crashes. Takes the crash for granted. And again, the higher we go, the, the, the worse will the crash. And I would be very happy Bitcoin today standing at about, I don't know, $50,000 to crash to 60. Because if it goes to 100 and it crashes to 60, it's going to be a disaster. So crypto is brutal. It's like the markets do everything to make you sell when you shouldn't and to make you buy when you shouldn't. It's really bad. Chapter seven is surviving winter. Now, if you've never been through a crypto winter and I've been through two of them, it's really hard to believe how bad it becomes. You pass from incredible exuberance and you, of course, are feeling the optimism I have in this market to a complete loss of trust and people thinking this was all a scheme. It was not possible. It wasn't sustainable. It's been just a big Ponzi and I'm going to get out of this. I lost money, etc., etc. Nobody believes anymore in crypto. You are an idiot for being in crypto. Everybody leaves, money dries up, and you don't know what to do. So what most people who remain, which are the minority, do, they build. So during winter, people build. But you listen to this in 2021. I assume you're listening to this in December or a few months later. This is probably not the best time to get heavily into crypto if you're new, because you're buying a lot of things on the top. Or maybe not, because you know we may have this last huge rally. Is when everybody around you are gonna say crypto is dead. So wait for that moment when everybody says crypto is dead and go for it. And when I say investing in in this podcast, I never mean investing money. I mean investing money, time, effort. Investing money should be the last thing you do, at least until you have a basic understanding and. Yes, you should invest your 100 euros or dollars very quickly to understand. It's like buying a course. It costs you $100 and you learn something. Even if you actually you lose them. When you buy a course, you lose the money, right? Because you, you are thinking, you are hoping to acquire knowledge. So yeah, you won't believe how bad the next bear market will be. And of course, there's this different option in which actually we're never going to go through a bad bear market, but there's going to be vertical bad markets like NFTs going bear markets, all the you know, NFTs which were selling for 10 ETH, now they cost 1 ETH or 0.1 ETH or nothing, while at the same time you have the DeFi world which is growing. So bear markets for verticals, but in general, crypto super cycle in which the whole market is growing. That's also a possible scenario. So if you pick your specific verticals, you should be careful about what's happening in that vertical specifically. And crypto is still part of the macro environment. So if there's another black swan event like coronavirus, everything is going to go down, which may make it a great buying opportunity. Imagine buying Bitcoin in March 2020 when it went down to $3,600. And a year later, it was like 10 times that. So don't fear the bear. Just be ready. Just be psychologically ready for that. And don't be overexposed. Don't do leverage. So don't bet more money than you have. Careful with the taxes, especially if you are from the United States. Because there's a system in which if you, at December, in December, you have $100,000. And in January of 50, you're still paying tax on the, on the 100. And you may not have the money. And they say, do not short, because it's really hard to short this market. 
it's, it's dangerous. Also, don't get falling knife. A falling knife is when, let's say, Ethereum goes from 4,000 to 3,000 and you buy because you say, wow, you went to 3,000, it's on sale. You buy a lot, it goes to 1,000. That's a falling knife. And as I was saying before, just don't do any trading. Trading is hard and you'll probably lose. And it ends with uh, this sentence. The time to go all in with crypto on your balance sheet was last year. I'd be more cautious here, 10 year and 10 hour thinking only. And I would say just 10 year thinking only. 10 hour is really hard. Chapter eight is public options. Coinbase opens the floodgates. Coinbase is a centralized exchange and they did an IPO. They raised $70 billion. But what's even more interesting is that non-IPO companies raised much more. So Binance BNB tokens, they went to $90 billion in market cap. And Binance as a company is worth about three times that. So Finnish is the era in which the only way to raise those amounts of money were through the public markets on the stock exchange. We have tokens now. So we will see huge companies who never IPO because they basically IPO'd at the beginning through a token. And the same is for DAOs. We're going to see huge DAOs in the future. So the next chapters are about which tokens have grown up, which tokens are interesting and so on. Um, there's not much in Web3. I'm not going to talk about specific tokens in Web3 yet. So I'm going to skip these, these chapters. The whole second section is 10 people to watch. And it basically gives you know um, some names. Something I will not do now. I'm not ready for that. I haven't that kind of knowledge in Web3 in travel. I'm not following everything and everyone. That would require some, some serious analysis and it's also a bit you know uh, i'm gonna have to judge people and put some names out there forget others skip others i don't think we we can do this at the moment i want to be and stay as neutral as possible but i strongly recommend you to go and read about these people in web3 there are some incredible people so section three is all about Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin is not integrated yet with the whole Web3 thing I'm talking about in the sense that Bitcoin is not Ethereum compatible in a way. So you don't access it to it through MetaMask, for instance. And so Bitcoin is doing its own thing. It wants to become the world store of value and money. And for that reason, it's very important, in my opinion, to follow it. It's an incredible project, but it's not at least yet very relevant in, term of, in terms of Web3. But being today still the most decentralized blockchain, the one with the biggest amount of liquidity into it, it may get integrated in the future. So it's important to follow, in my opinion. So I will not tell you every single chapter. I just give you a few broad strokes of what's being said here. And it starts by saying, please check on Peter Schiff. Peter Schiff is a gold uh, bug. He has been saying for years that Bitcoin is going to zero and gold is the best store of value. And, and Ryan here says, look, $100 in gold 10 years ago is $102 today. While if you had invested $100 in Bitcoin in the same time period, you would have now won $1.7 million. So gold has actually lost as a store of value in these 10 years because 
inflation has eaten in, in these $2, which it has yielded. Of course, this doesn't mean that in the future it's going to be the same. Who knows? Bitcoin may crash and gold come back, but that's been for the last 10 years, not the last 10 months. One way in which Bitcoin may become relevant in Web3 is the wrapped Bitcoin. So you basically send your Bitcoin to someone or a protocol, more than some, which keeps the Bitcoin there for you and gives you WBTC, so Bitcoin on the Ethereum network, which basically makes Bitcoin a token like the others, and it can be traded, sent, staked, etc., etc. This is already happening. Uh, more than 1.5% of the Bitcoin supply is already wrapped because people want to use it. They want to get interest out of it. In, if you stay on Bitcoin, you won't get interest. You have to send it to a centralized company. Now, is the bridge which allows you to wrap it centralized or not? Well, this is something you really should look into it because I don't know. I haven't done it yet. But bridges are risky in general. So check it out. Check out bridges before you, you commit your money into them. Oh, and by the way, bridges is a bad name. You don't bridge your money to another network. You park your money at the bridge and they give you another thing which represents the money, sorry, the Bitcoin in this case, and, and you go to the other side. So more than a bridge is a deposit. It also talks about the great fall of China and then actually the great fall of China's Bitcoin industry because China has banned mining and overnight we lost 50% of the nodes. And just a bit later, all the miners relocated to other countries, especially the United States. And while we talk about Bitcoin, the same thing happened for Ethereum because Ethereum is still a proof of work network for the moment. So the same thing happened with Ethereum. So it means that there was this big fear that crypto was too much in the hand of China. Most of the miners were there. China could crack it down. They could shut down Bitcoin. Well, this is gone. Now China is out and Bitcoin is as healthy as ever. You cannot get Bitcoin out of your country, but you can get your country out of Bitcoin. In the same way, you could not get the internet out of a country, but you can get your country out of the internet, which basically means you can miss out on this revolution, but the revolution keeps going with or without you, even if you are China, even if you are a country with, with an enormous population. In another chapter, it says Bitcoin as a clean energy stimulus. I won't get into this, but you'll probably hear a lot that crypto is killing and is boiling the, 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 the oceans. It is not that simple. It is limited to proof of work and Ethereum is transitioning to proof of stake. And it may be even argued that Bitcoin is good for the environment because it is subsiding clean energy. So go and read it if you're interested, but you will be and we will be attacked on this, on this thing that, you know, crypto is bad, blockchain is bad. And again, it's not that simple. And actually, it could be a good thing for the climate to have blockchains. It then talks about the Lightning Network, which is basically a network on top of the Bitcoin. It's a layer two, which allows very quick and very cheap payments. Bitcoin has always been slow. A block takes about 10 minutes. So when you make a payment, you have to wait about 10 minutes, 5, 10, sometimes 15, if you need more than one confirmation. So it's easily an hour. And I remember myself buying, for instance, in Chiang Mai in Thailand a few years ago, a salad, paying it in Bitcoin and having to wait a long time for being confirmed. So Bitcoin has never been a good payment method. And with Lightning Network, it promises to be. Lightning Network has been adopted in El Salvador, where Bitcoin now is a legal tender. 
And what many people discount is the fact that actually Lightning has been growing a lot. It's been a long time coming. So what happens normally is that people get tired of waiting and other better solutions came out of the Ethereum ecosystem. But Lightning is growing and is getting better and better. So it could be the de facto payment method for many use cases in travel in the future. Who knows? So keep an eye on it. Uh, Bitcoin is not dead. Lightning is absolutely not dead. So I expect a lot of innovation from, from this field in general and so for the travel industry too. Section four is all about the American crypto policy. And by American here, they mean United States. And this is important because whatever the Americans do, we will do later. Because the financial world is basically based uh, on American regulations. So if regulations become very restrictive towards cryptocurrencies, this is going to affect the whole market and everybody in the world. So it's worth keeping an eye on it. It's uh, 2021. It's not anymore the time to think that crypto will be left alone and whatever we do in Web3, in travel, is out of regulations. We are going to have to understand what's happening, try to forecast what's going to happen, and basically try to be compliant to, to the extent on which this is possible. Now, as usual, the real innovation happens at the, at the edges and at the fringes. So I really hope to see in, in travel some experiments we are, which are not looking too much about regulation, but they're more looking about innovation and, and, and they will be regulated later. Um, nothing gets innovated if you, first of all, ask yourself, what does the law say? Imagine the people build Bitcoin if they ask themselves, is this legal? Uh, no, it wasn't legal. War is at fault. Like Countries have been invaded to keep the supremacy of the dollar. So you can imagine somebody saying, okay, let's do this the right way. Let's ask to you know the regulator in America if we can do Bitcoin. Uh, of course, that's a non-starter, right? And we will find ourselves in trouble too sometimes to like somebody will say, is this legal? No, it's not because often the, the, the regulation doesn't even cover these use cases. Is a DAO even legal, right? Uh, well, were strikes legal? The strikes which brought all these civil liberties, of course, they were not legal at the beginning. So one thing you quickly learn or you are reminded in crypto is that the law is one thing and the right thing to do is another thing. Often, civil liberties start as illegal acts and only later the law catches up. So we have a responsibility to kind of break the law often in this field, especially if we are experimenting with things. Because this brings later on better laws and better outcomes for the population in general. So go and read that chapter if you're interested. It's, uh, it's really um, a deep dive into what's happening in the regulation in the United States. One thing I can say, it's definitely in the eye of the politicians right now. So we're going to hear more, more about that. And Europe will, will catch up. I hope they don't keep doing the things they do, which is this useless like you know, cookie uh, click the cookie acceptance things, which just slow down things and bring zero solutions to anything. Let's hope we get a bit more useful regulation in Europe. But I'm not really optimist about anything at that level. 
And there's um, a chapter about DAOs in which Ryan says, well, we hope that DAOs become recognized as a new corporate primitive and they have the right to own land, bank accounts, real estate, and so on, because the DAO actually is uh, represented in the legacy world by an LCC, so a limited company. And funny fact, uh, Wyoming was the first state to recognize LCCs uh, about a century ago or something. And this is a very, very interesting development because you now have a group of people who do not belong to a company who basically manage treasury on chain with crypto and take decisions based on tokens who then can instruct a real company to interact with the real world. It was the missing piece. It's certainly an interesting step forward and probably interesting things will come out of it. It's just another way to coordinate people with the enormous difference that now there are tokens which are incredible tools for coordinating people. We didn't have that before. So let's see what we have here, which is interesting from the travel industry point of view. The first chapter is about Bitcoin futures ETFs. Very technical if you're not in finance. But it's somehow interesting anyway, because the title is the Bitcoin futures ETFs, uh, ETFs are state-sponsored pieces of shit. I won't go into detail why they are this and what ETFs are, but basically... ETFs are a way for people to invest in Bitcoin without actually having to buy and custody Bitcoin, which is difficult for, for many people or dangerous. And pure ETFs haven't been allowed yet, while future ETFs are, have been allowed. And simply a way for Wall Street to make a lot of money out of a product which is not needed. So I am mentioning this chapter because that's a general constant danger we have in Web3, which is institutions and governments doing things which look good and are actually just a way for the incumbents to keep making money and uh, leveraging their position. And if you remember that this whole Web3 movement is a way to, uh, for transferring power from the elites and the incumbents and the governments to the people, you will understand that it's obviously expected for them to fight back. How will they fight back? Well, in many ways, and one way is to you know, try to leverage, exploit this uh, knowledge asymmetry. Remember the tweet I mentioned at the beginning from, from Ryan Selkis. Don't spit in our face and pretend you're here to save people from us. We started this movement to save people from you. And remember Red Phone Crypto tweet, who says, there are but two ingredients by which one should judge all long-term crypto projects. Subtraction of power from the elites, addition of power to the people. Now, some of you may find this too ideological and kind of dismiss this part. And I, I will understand because we went through this kind of ideological beginning and very pragmatic development in every decentralized technology in the past. 
like the radios started as a popular movement with popular radios and then the internet which was supposed to bring democracy everywhere and has become basically a surveillance machine and now web3 who's promising power to the people and unfortunately i tend to agree that after a certain period power will go back to the elites because this is what power does it goes back to people who are focused and motivated to get it but do not discount this long period, it's going to be a few years, in which actually power does go back to the people. So the opportunity is there, right? Then what happens is that many people who were people become elites. Many crypto people are becoming elites. And when you become elite, you change your perspective and you stop caring about people. That's why actually the power goes back to the elites. But it goes back often to different elites. So the way I see it is a few years of power shifting away from old institutions and elites who did not adapt and then concentrating in the hands of new elites. So you play your, this game in the best way you think is possible. So whatever your view of the whole situation is, um, my mind may be wrong and it's certainly evolving, it really pays off to have a position, to have a worldview. So work on it as much as you can. Uh, chapter two is Goldman, Gary, and the Rag M Redemption, which probably means nothing to you, but in short, it describes another product which is basically conceived to lock people in and never let them out, which is, that's why it's called like, uh, it calls it a Hotel California structure. And this is the Grayscale Fund. And that's another example in which the scam is not coming from the, you know, Bitcoin criminals. It's not coming from, you know, tokens and ICOs. The scam is coming from very well-respected institutions under the sleepy eyes of the SEC, which is the Security Exchange Commission, which is supposed to defend investors. And so it reinforces the message that it's not like if you trust the suits you trust the banks, you trust Wall Street, you trust SEC, you're going to be okay. While if you go in the wild west of crypto, you are going to be scammed. It's not that easy. It's not that black and white at all. I'm skipping a chapter and I go straight to chapter number four, CFI versus TradFi. CFI is centralized finance versus traditional finance. So you've heard about DeFi, the centralized finance, and then you've heard about TradFi, or whatever you've heard about traditional finance, and CFI is something in the middle. CFI are centralized regulated companies in crypto, basically like Coinbase or Binance or FTX or Gemini, the exchange from the Winklevoss brothers. Remember the movie, The Social Network, the, the twins? They have an exchange and they've been in Bitcoin for, for a very long time now. So these are new companies which serve the crypto world. They, they serve the decentralized world, which needs centralized companies, mostly for onboarding fiat, for exchanging your euro your dollars to get into crypto. And they serve the less sophisticated investor or even the sophisticated investor for those things which cannot yet be done in the decentralized finance. The thesis here is these have already won. The TradFi companies, banks, etc have already lost. They are legacy institutions right now and they have very few chances to, to adapt. 
Ryan ends the chapter by saying, by 2030, we will see a trillion dollar crypto exchange. And we can say by 2000, I don't know, 40, maybe 30, 35, I don't know, we will see a billions dollar OTA, Web3 OTA, crypto OTA. There's another incredibly interesting um, chapter here, it's chapter eight, in which he revisits the ICO boom. Some of you may remember ICOs. Let me refresh your memory. ICOs was a um, very big thing back in 2017, 2018, where a couple of kids could simply you know, open a, a WordPress website and issue a token and say, okay, buy my token, we're gonna disrupt X, whatever. And these ICOs raised a lot of money because it was completely unregulated and all you had to do was to send a bit of your ETH and automatically the smart contract would send you back their own token. And that it was so easy to raise money and so you know fast and the amounts of money were millions, tens of millions, some ICOs raised billions, that of course it went out of hand and many, many of these ICOs were outright scams. They would write a nice white paper, a nice website, raise the money, and disappear. So ICOs have become synonym with scam. But I remember very well Andreas Antonopoulos saying, you have to be able to keep two thoughts in your mind at the same time. The majority of ICOs are scams or you know, startups which have no basis for success. They will fail for sure. And at the same time, the most innovative thing happening in venture capital in the last 20 years. And let me open a parenthesis here. You need this kind of thinking in crypto. You need to have two conflicting thoughts at the same time in your head. This is your superpower because you will always see things which are clearly scams, but running on rails, which are basically new infrastructures. So Ryan says, goes back to these ICOs, which were again, you know, in the public consciousness, the biggest scam of the last years, and makes an analysis and says, how much money has been raised through token sales? ICOs, pardon me, are token sales, initial coin offerings. That's why ICO. So the detractors say that ICOs and other digital assets offerings raised billions from investors, but most never delivered on their promises. Which, if you think about it, is just like what startups do. You know, startups today are really part of the establishment. Everybody's about startups. We have startups laws. Everybody wants to push for innovation. So startups are good. Big Brother tells us startups are good. But any investor in startups know that you have to invest in a hundred of them to get maybe one go, you know, go for an exit and, and make you all the money back, right? So this kind of Mortality over 99% is natural in high risk, high innovation endeavors, right? So Ryan calculates that total token sales at the time raised about $20 billion. And you will go like, oh my God, $20 billion wasted on stupid projects. And there we go with the interesting part. Binance was an ICO, and Binance alone has delivered five times on that entire initial investment. And I'm quoting, here's the actual math for seven token selling projects in the top 15 by market cap. Binance raised $15 million and now it's valued 
at $109 billion. Solana raised $25 million and now is worth $72 billion. And then it goes on with ADA, DOT, Luna, AVAX, and LINK. So that's $350 billion of value creation on just half a billion of invested capital. And this covers all the losers, all the money put in. And this is excluding the biggest token sale of, of all, which is Ethereum, which is now worth $500 billion, and which raised only $18 million. So then there's another case, which is a CoinList. CoinList is a, is a company which allows you basically whitelist some tokens. So every token you can buy there at launch is whitelisted, is like selected, and allows investment only to people from certain countries. For instance, it doesn't allow people from North Korea and United States. And this is not because CoinList doesn't want American investors, it's because the SEC wants to protect those investors. And look at the um, returns that SEC has protected investors from. Solana, 60,425% returns. Flow, 9,346%. Filecoin, 6,000. Near, 1,800. Mina, 1,400. And so, so on. And in the whole list of about 20 companies, a couple of them lost. Algorand lost 34%. And Props, which lost 88%, because was effectively, I'm quoting, destroyed as their decision to comply with the SEC reporting and securities restrictions under Reg A made their network unusable. So, again, I'm quoting, if you had invested blindly with $100 across each coin list sale, you would have deployed $2,000 and a return of $150,000 with a 100% hit rate aside from the SEC-sanctioned project. So you see how the SEC is actually not protecting people in the crypto world. The next section is about payments, and it's interesting because it really allows me this time to, to go deeper in what can happen in travel with payments. So here the report gives a few examples of companies which are innovating in, in payment. One very interesting one is Superfluid, which allows fluid payments, basically streaming payments. It's like I can start paying you now and every fraction of a second, you get a little bit of money. And when I stop the streaming, you stop getting it. It's you know, your classic uh, solution in search of a problem, but think about it for salaries, for instance, right? Instead of paying the salary at the end of the month, you pay the salary from day one, from second one, until the end of the month. So you keep paying all the time, and people who work for you can get the money all the time. Is this a good way to do it? I don't know, but just to, you know, just to explain you what can be done here. So maybe an hotel where, okay, you can spend the night. Um, we're not necessarily going to talk about hotels by the hour, but it could be like, in this hotel, you can stay a minimum eight hours. And that's the minimum price. So you get in, you pay that price. And after, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning, you start paying by the second. So the sooner they leave, the better. Cheaper for them, more time for you for cleaning and, and so on. And again, another idea which just came to my mind right now but you can understand how this opens possibilities and it's just about being creative and imagining new things but the general question here is how can i accept cryptocurrencies as a payment in my establishment 
And the interesting thing here is that the payment companies are already working on it. So Stripe is hiring a crypto team. Coinbase announced a partnership with Visa for their Coinbase card. Um, Moonpay raised at a 3.4 billion valuation. Ramp, a payment company in Poland, raised $300 million. What does it mean for the travel industry professional? I think it means you will be able to accept crypto without doing anything. And that happens in two ways. One way is crypto people will come to your, let's say, hotel and pay with a credit card in dollars or euros, but they are financing, they are topping up the credit card with crypto. And there's already many cards like this. There's crypto.com, there's Binance card, there's, there's a lot, really. So you're probably already accepting crypto in a way or the other. The only thing is that you don't know that the people who buy your services are actually using crypto. You, you are cashing in fiat money. But sooner or later, you will be able to even define that you want to accept only Ether when people pay with crypto or only a stable coin like USDC, USDT or others. So that your treasury becomes not only your bank account, but also a safe with crypto in it. And probably you won't even need to manage this safe, but you know, some centralized company like Coinbase will help you do it. What I don't see happening is you doing a lot of work, trying to accept every cryptocurrency and you know, learning about that, teaching your, your staff to accept cryptocurrencies and have people come in there and say, okay, I want to pay in this coin, that coin, and you have to kind of know how to do it. I don't see this happening. There are payment companies. They are very aware of what's happening. They see that there's a big opportunity in serving the crypto segment, which generally has a good amount of money compared to the standard. And maybe the end of this road is a protocol which allows you to cash directly crypto without any extra fees from the payment processors, like from Visa and the others, but maybe not. We are probably going into a direction in which there's a lot of different opportunities. And according to how much time and effort you want to put into it, you get a more centralized payment system or a more decentralized payment system. So yes, you will accept crypto. You are probably already accepting crypto and you will have a treasury made of fiat money in bank accounts and crypto in treasuries. And when you have crypto treasuries, you can stake them, you can lend and uh, you can earn better interest. Now, a bank pays you 0.025% per year. If you stake your Stable coins, it's still easy to get 5% per year. It's going to go down as more people get into this, but it's still going to be much higher than what banks pay you. The next chapters are all about central bank digital currencies. You may have heard about them, like the digital dollar, the digital Chinese currency. So chapter 12, DCEP, which is the Chinese money. To be perfectly honest with you, I have spent approximately 15 minutes reading up on the central bank digital currencies this year. I read and heard what I needed to several years ago when the concept was first introduced. And ever since, every headline I've seen essentially boils down to, wow, this is great. We can fully surveil citizens' financial transactions and bring rates negative when needed. No me gusta. I don't like it. That's what he says. 
China's DCEAP offers a special sort of healthscape, social credit scores, and you'll notice this is one of the only times I'm referencing them in this report, because otherwise I don't view anything crypto-related in China as interesting. China is going to roll out its DCAP in time for the Winter Olympics in a few months. And my fear is that the major Western governments will view the rollout as an incredible success and attempt to emulate the new product as quickly as they can. They will fail, of course, because those with the technical acumen to pull a project like this, like Facebook, are reviled by our government leaders versus aligned and partnered with them. The Chinese digital currency, as with all CCP crypto policy, is ultimately designed to eliminate leaks in the country capital controls. My biggest fear is that this is just step one in a long-term move to displace the dollar as an exportable reserve currency. So let me, let me stop reading here and, and give you a, a synthesis of this. Basically, China is, doing, is fighting Bitcoin and is introducing a digital currency because of strategic reasons. They want to reduce capital flights, so people bringing money out of China, and they have a shot at becoming the world digital currency because the dollar is, is just not moving, at least the official dollar, because the decentralized or not decentralized stable coins are actually the biggest right now. But if the US government is fighting them, well, they may lose this game. So we may be in a world in a few years where the world currency is the Chinese, Chinese money, because actually China is, is going fast. And Ryan is saying we should just, as a, as a government, we should help the USD stablecoins. They are there. The technology is there. They are being the inventors, the innovators. It's, it's very good. Why don't we simply follow them, right? And there's, of course, reasons against this, but that's, that's a thesis. All I want to highlight here from the travel industry point of view is that stablecoins are here to stay. So you will be able and you will accept cryptocurrencies which are worth a dollar. There are also cryptocurrencies which are attempting to be stable, but not as stable as, as the US dollar because the US dollar is not stable with a 6-7% inflation. So they peg their value to the real world in a way to say this one cryptocurrency buys you a kilo of bread today and will buy you a kilo of bread in a year, while the US dollar buys you a kilo of bread today and then buys you 900 grams or 930 grams in a year's time. The point is, if you're a travel professional, you will accept crypto and there's going to be also many cryptocurrencies which are stable. And I highlight this because still today, many travel professionals say, well, I can't accept crypto because it's volatile, right? The price changes often. And this is not true and hasn't been true for a long time already. Crypto stable coins are a fact of life today, and they have been for a few years now. Okay, so this is the end of the first episode dedicated to the Messari report. See you at the next one. All right, this is the end of today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. For more insights on Web3, follow me on Twitter at tripluca, T-R-I-P-L-U-C-A, and see you next time.